Hey, 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 you, 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 hey, 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 you, 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 hey, 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 you, 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 hey, martial arts fan, are you ready to get your guts kicked out? Well, get ready. The cannon group has just given you a dare, 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 dare. Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 138 when we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by watching some of those old video nasties. Uh-oh. Hey. Uh, this week we have something really uh, interesting uh, for you all. It's action number 37 from the UK. Ooh, Golden Age book. That, no, no, not that action. Uh, <laughs> different action uh, comic book altogether. This one's cover dated the 23rd of October, 1976. Published by IPC Magazines. Written by Pat Mills, John Wagner, and Steve McManus. And uh, we bet... People drew these things as well. We have a feeling. I think so. Uh, and this was edited by John Sanders. Cover price, 7P. Hmm. Uh, I also want to say right now, before I forget, that to our listeners in the United Kingdom, uh, we are going to be using uh, British dialects, and we apologize. We are so, so sorry. And we invite you to uh, send us recordings mimicking our American voices if it has <laughs> any kind of a trade-off or revenge for you. So let's talk about John Wagner. Here's a guy that was born 1949 in Pennsylvania. When he was 12, his parents divorced, and John went with his siblings to live with their mother in her native Scotland. John says he was a wayward boy in America, and this change was the discipline he needed to straighten out. When he left school, he joined a printing company going to college on day release until his aunt showed him an advert for editorial assistance at D.C. Thompson and Company in Dundee, Scotland. He started in the fiction department and went on to become chief sub-editor in the, of the romance comic Romeo in the mid-1960s. Uh, he also wrote some horoscopes. Uh, he and Pat Mills, about whom we'll hear more in a minute, he was a fellow sub-editor, left to go freelance in 1971 and began submitting scripts to London's International Public Publishing Corporation, or IPC, about which we will also hear more in a minute, working for Mills Garden Shed in Warmit, Scotland. And, and this this guy's a uh, he's a psychic too. I mean, you can uh, write can horoscopes. You yeah, look at that. That's why he had to write those horoscopes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, starting with humor titles like Core and Wizza and Chips magazines, uh, they also went on to write for girls and boys adventure comics, which included strips like Yellowknife of the Yard, which is about a Native American detective in London, drawn by Doug Maxted for Valiant magazine. Also, Partridge's Patch, about a friendly rural policeman and his dog, that was drawn by Mike Weston for. Jet Magazine, uh, not that Jet Magazine. No, different Jet Magazine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the Can Do Kids for Lion, and uh, boarding school serial School for Snobs for Tabby for Tammy Magazine. 
After nine months, in ri- their writing partnership would break up, and Wagner moved to London to join IPC's staff. And he edited girls' titles Sandy and Princess Tina up until 1973, when those were merged into other titles. Uh, we talked about the, uh, the the British way of uh, oh yes, put, <laughs> the the way of putting the comics together, and you have different names, different formats, all that. Different oh, that stuff. that that'll happen with this one too, sure. All... Oh yes. <laughs> now Wagner would quit comics for a little while. He took on jobs, like as a caretaker for an estate on, on the Scottish Highlands, and he also dredged on a barge. But uh, we hop over to meet Pat Mills, who's Pat Emon Mills, born 1949 in Britain. He continued to work with D.C. Thompson and Company in Scotland after Wagner had left. And when they launched Warlord, a successful war-themed weekly, so not that Warlord. Not that Warlord. <laughs> <laughs> now, Mills was asked by IPC to develop a rival title. Uh, this was in 1974. Mills asked Wagner to join him and help develop characters for a new series called Battle Picture Weekly. And Mills and Wagner felt boys' comics were too sanitized, and they wanted to make them harder-hitting with more working-class heroes. They devised the opening lineup of this comic themselves with the assistance of fellow Scotsman and writer Jerry Finley Day before farming the stories out to other writers. Based in the girls' comics department to avoid the attention of the staff of the boys' department, the trio worked on this in secret for months. Battle Picture Weekly was launched with a cover date of 8 March 1975, and it was a hit. Having made the comic ready for launch, Mills resigned as editor. That's kind of a thing. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about International Publishing Corporation. Uh, This is definitely a corporation, as you will learn. Uh, After absorbing a dozen or so daily and weekly newspapers, as well as hundreds of magazines from around the world, in 1965, Chairman Cecil Harmsworth King formed the International Publishing Corporation, a holding company to make sense of these smaller bits, and to make sure that no two of them were competing for the same market share. That's pretty common in corporate mergers and takeovers. Uh, Three years later, a boardroom coup replaced King with former newspaper editor Hugh Kudlip. Kudlip had no interest in management and was uneasy both with his new role and with the computerization of newspaper publishing. In 1969, Kudlip therefore proposed to Don Ryder, chairman of the Reed Group, in which IPC had a 30% shareholding, to mount a reverse takeover of IPC by Reed. IPC Mirror Group was thus itself taken over in 1970 by the paper-making company Albert E. Reed, which then renamed itself Reed International. In 1974, part of the publishing interests of Reed International were separated into IPC Magazines Limited, comprising the magazines and comics holdings, and Mirror Group newspapers, which comprised the newspaper holdings. The latter would be sold to Pergamon Pergamon Holdings Limited, a private company, which was owned by Robert Maxwell in 1984. After the debut of Battle Picture Weekly, John Wagner continued to write for girls' comics, including scripting gymnastics strip Bella at the Bar. This was for Tammy magazine. And he was appointed editor of an ailing boys' weekly magazine called Valiant. Now, characters he he created for this title included the tough New York City cop One-Eyed Jack. This would be drawn by John Cooper, which was inspired by the film Dirty Harry, and it would become the comic's most popular character. Also, Soldier Sharp, which was drawn by Joe Calcahoon about a cunning coward in World War II. Both of these strips transferred to Battle magazine when Valiant was merged into it in 1976, with One-Eyed Jack leaving the police and becoming a spy. Valiant, uh, Valiant magazine having folded, John Wagner quit editorial and would return to freelance writing. 
1976 to 77, he wrote Darkies Mob for Battle, a violent series about a renegade British captain leading a group of lost soldiers in a personal war against the Japanese in Burma during World War II, drawn by Mike Western. This became one of the, pop, the comic's most popular strips, although Wagner has since said he regrets some of the jingoistic racist language used. Uh, Darkies Mob is a pejorative term there. Uh-huh. Uh, other strips he wrote for Battle Picture Weekly included Joe Two Beans in 1977 about a mutant Native American soldier in the Pacific Campaign, drawn by Eric Bradbury, and the naval series HMS Nightshade from 1978 to 79, drawn by Mike Western. After launching Battle, Pat Mills began developing a new boy's title, Action, launched in 1976. It was intended to reflect the changing social and political times of the late 1970s and was created at the direction of IPC, but they were more looking to compete with DC Thompson's warlord some more, (laughs) not to shake up the entire system of everything. Uh, Pat Mills meant for Action to be more contemporary and realistic and not so centered on the heroics of war. Mills enlisted the like-minded Wagner to create the series, and they also got veteran comics writer Steve McManus on board. Or maybe McManus, probably. One of those. Uh, the team evaluated several names, including Boots and Dr. Martins. Those were possible titles for this comic. Uh, <laughs> the comic was briefly to have been called Action 76, with the title incrementing each year. But in the end, it was simply named Action, and it debuted with a cover date of February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1976. The comic was instantly popular, particularly for its gritty tone and graphic gore. And within weeks, the media had picked up on the title's violent content. The London Evening Standard and The Sun would run major articles on the comic, with the lattering echoing the Victorian Penny Dreadful by by dubbing Action the Seven Penny Nightmare. Over the next few months, Action was the center of a campaign led by Mary Whitehouse of the National Viewers and Listeners Association to censor or ban the comic, and uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about Miss Whitehouse Mm -hmm. later on. Now, IPC eventually started to moderate strips for forestall possible uh, to forestall possible boycotts by newspaper chains. In September of 1976, editor John Sanders appeared on the television program Nationwide, where he tried to defend the comic against a rigorous attack by the interviewer. Then pressure within IPC's higher management and alleged worries that the two news the two major newspaper chains, W.H. Smith and John Menzies, would refuse to stock not just action. But all of IPC's line would lead to the October 23rd issue, that's number 37, being pulped. And we're about to read that banned issue right this very second. Whoa, how do we do it? We'll tell you. I don't know how we got it. We'll we'll tell you our great secret (laughs) later on, folks. So the cover of this, the front cover, depicts a well-armored fellow in a football helmet racing towards the reader on a stripped-down motorcycle. A chute affixed to the side of the bike is in position to catch a ball, and this will all make sense much later when we read the comic. The title says, It's Sheer Suicide Not to Read Action. Came out every Saturday. This one's cover date is there, 23rd October 1976. A blurb reads, Witness Suicide Scoop in Death Game 1999. Another blurb, Commit Suicide, Swim in the Sea with Hookjaw, Try to Double Cross Dredger, Drive a Truck in Hell's Highway. And these are all titles of stories within the issue, as we will see. 
The inside cover and facing page serve as a letters page, a kind of a collage of typeset copy and actual letters and drawn pictures, which look more like something from a kid's magazine than something you'd see in a traditional yeah. comic. It's like highlights or something. Yeah, right? Uh, Goofith and Gallant. Uh, now, it begins with a letter from the writer and presumably editor, Sean McManus. He says, hi there. Not so long ago, me and my mate, me and me mates went to represent action at a convention of comic fans. The best part was an all-night festival of great horror movies. Well, instead of hanging out waiting for them to start, we nipped off to a nearby boozer. Of course, by the time we got back to the convention's hotel, not only were we blind drunk, we'd missed all the good films. All they had on was an old Marx Brother Lark, Marx Brothers Lark from 1929. It was awful, but the booze was great. Hyphen Steve. How do you like your kid's comic book? <laughs> I, I like that. It sounds good. The all night boozers, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, we dipped off to the boozer. All right. Uh, the five pound letter of the week, that would be five British dollars, not five actual weight pounds. Just keep in the right frame of mind. This is from Evelyn Williams, and it reads. Dear Steve, I am not a soppy old schoolgirl. I'm a tough tomboy. I've had loads of fights with boys, especially my brother. I usually win. At school, I'm in the sports every year. I also want to say most of the boys in my class are scared of me. I have a pal who is a real old tomboy. Her name is Inara. I hope I get on your letters page. I think action is way out west. My favorite story is Hookjaw, and the one I like best is Hellman of Hammerforce. By the way, I'm 10 years old. Sorry about the crossing out. I hope you can read this letter. My full address is at the back. Well, bye for now from Evelyn. I wonder if Evelyn is still breaking about that. I would of love time. to. I bet the boys are still we scared gotta, of her. We got to track down all Evelyn. <laughs> <laughs> we got one from Paul Turner from Rotterham in Yorkshire. He sent in a poem for rhyme time, and it says, Hookjaw lives at the bottom of the sea. He'll bite the head off you and me. Go down there and start to pray. This is not your lucky day. The hook it went through thee, hook jaw, is definitely not for me. <laughs> when we, we read that, we will all, it's incredible. Yeah, very good. <laughs> uh, Richard Lincoln, age 10, from Nantwich, Chesh Nantwich Cheshire, re writes, Dear Steve, while my granddad was serving in the Palestinian police, there was a, a faulty Lewis gun in the camp, so my granddad decided to mend it. But there was live ammunition in the gun, and while he was mending it, the gun went off. The bullet went through two walls and shot a Palestinian constable in the foot. At the inquiry, the inquiry officer asked my granddad whether he had a grudge against the constable. Okay. <laughs> now, uh, we would love to read every single letter and describe all of these wonderful cartoons sent to this magazine, but uh, we got a lot more to get through, so we will get right into the first story, which is called Dredger, or Dredger is the feature. Uh, now, at the top of the page reads, Dredger gets results. Whatever the cost. Now, the scene opens with three panels of a guy murdering a guard at the East German border before sprinting across that no-man's land uh, amid machine gun fire into Western safety. Caption reads, The flag man was bound for freedom at a meeting with an agent as dirty as himself, a man they called Dredger. Two days later, on a cross-channel ferry bound for the Hook of Holland... Agents Breed and Dredger are standing around being jerks to each other. Yeah, Dredger goes, Thought we were supposed to be holidaymakers spending a weekend in Amsterdam's night spots, Breed. You look more like you're going to an old boys' reunion. Breed says, I hardly think I need your advice on dress, Dredger. Shut up while I tell you what this is all about. 
We'd like to note that all of the dialogue throughout this issue is typeset in all caps. It's uh, <laughs> really, really not pretty. It just feels like, it feels like the comic is just shouting at you the whole <laughs> time. <laughs> it does. And there also aren't any commas or really many exclamation points. So with the primary punctuation here is a period and an occasional question mark clearly drawn in, not typeset. Yeah, so like they didn't have it have, on the typewriter. On they the typewriter. It was really weird. They lost that key. Uh, now, uh, <laughs> So the guy in the first scene is a Polish defector named Joswiak. Joswiak, yes. And he's going to pass espionage documents off to Dredja. But he's anxious to get to South America and safety, and he's only accepting diamonds as payment. Luckily, Breed produces a whole fistful of them. Sure. It's about 30,000 pounds worth. But our side reckons the information is this character's bringing out is worth it. Dredger readies his pistol for this assignment, just in case. Actually, he'd probably ready his pistol no matter what the job was, right? He, kind of, he seems like a guy that just keeps it ready, to be honest with right you. Right there, ready to go, yeah. Uh, Breed and Dredger arrive in Amsterdam, which we are told is the diamond capital of the world. There, they check into a CD motel where a note has been left for Breed. It reads, meet at doorway of Van Roy's, shipfitters, Zijia Canal, 0100 tonight. That's from all men. Must be. I told you, Dredger, this job is a plain sailing. This smells, Breed. As far as we know, no one's t- no one's telling this guy. Yet, he wants me to make the pickup in a really dirty part of town well after midnight. Why? You worry too much, Dredger. Maybe he doesn't like crowds. Plus, isn't this like a covert hands-off of, hand-off yeah. of stolen material here? Uh, <laughs> Is Dredger thinking like you're gonna like this is like a Craigslist thing where you're gonna meet at Starbucks I mean, to you know, exchange just, diamonds for espionage? This is this this is the sort of thing you really expect to happen about one in the morning. So I don't, I don't right. have a problem this year. <laughs> yeah, this isn't this isn't like a noon thing. No. Uh, now, an hour before the meeting time, Dredger takes off without explanation. So Breed heads over to Zedia Canal himself. He guesses that Dredger is just off sulking due to paranoia. At 15 minutes past the hour, Breed is met. By someone with a billy club. You waited a long time for me. Take a rest, friend. And Breed says, oh. And Breed is knocked out. And Waziak easily pilfers all them diamonds. He says, just like stealing candy from a baby. Your English, you are so trusting. No, just Breed, for some reason. <laughs> really? <laughs> I take your diamonds and pick up another payment for my documents from the American CIA agent who waited for me across the city. The caption tells us that the pole had to had to speedboat. He had a speedboat waiting for him in the canal. And uh, we swear it's what the caption says. That's exactly what it says. We're not certain. <laughs> 30000 from the British, $50,000 from the Americans, all in diamonds. It should keep me in luxury for a while. He's, he, if, if this doesn't work, he can get into, like, conversions, right? Something he can just like hell, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, this this weighs about $50,000. <laughs> uh, now, as Wozniak pulls away from the quayside, uh, another boat pulls up quickly behind him. And its wheel is... Dredger, duh, what do you think? <laughs> I won't, Reed, but the stupid Burke wouldn't listen. He'll have, to, he'll have to look after himself. I've got to grab that guy, get the papers and the diamonds. He'd had better get time and a half for this work, a little, mm-hmm. a little extra than was asked for. Uh, Josviak's boats is faster. He's able to pull away from Dredger, and Dredger judges, judges that he's too far away to be effectively shot. The canal opens into a basin of open water where Joswiak uh, could easily speed away. 
Just there is a uh, sunken barge. Sunken barge ahead. Better swing around it than head north to and shake this interfering English off my tail. Caption reads, As the Pole's boat zoomed around a tight curve, Dredger made this a cool snap decision. This is the only chance I'll get. Let's hope this cradle stand the shock. Dredger's boat hits the edge of the barge and makes a flying leap. And slams right down on Joswiak's speedboat. Ah, you crazy English! <laughs> Dredger takes the documents and the diamonds from Joswiak while in the water. And, oh yeah, Joswiak died, by the way. <laughs> If you want to cheat, you've got to be good at it, chum. You weren't, so you died. This time we're lucky. We get the diamonds back and the documents you were going to hawk us. This guy work for accounting or something? It's like he really, really got to get every diamond accounted for. <laughs> uh, back on the dock, Breed is there feeling a little humbled, naturally. Glad to see you're still in the land of the living, Breed. Here's your documents and the diamonds, too. Sorry, mate, I must have dropped one of them in the canal. Well, guess we'll never get that back. Oh, oh, uh, yes, well done, Dredger. And he thinks to himself, Dropped it in the canal? Who's Dredger trying to kid? He's made himself another unofficial dirty payment for another dirty job. But that's Dredger, all right. And the caption at the base of the page reads, Mess around with Dredger, get a gut full of lead. Yes! <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> that is uh, every comic in this is, is three pages, by the way, so it's really tightly plotted, folks. Very not, tight. Not a, lot of, not a lot of decompression in these things. Uh, the next one is titled Probationer, and a copy at the top of the page reads, Slater means trouble for Dave, and Slater's a Burke. A caption will set the tale for us. We need to find out what a Burke is. I really, I kind of want to know, but I don't want to know. It's, <laughs> I know. Almost, it's too good. <laughs> no, the caption reads, Dave Brockman was on a six-month probation after a case of mistaken identity. Although eager to stay out of trouble so that he could look after his crippled mother, Dave had been blackmailed by Clem Slater into participating in crooked activity. The opening panel shows a disheveled, long-haired man named Clem Slater pleading with Dave Brockman, who's a more clean-cut gentleman, well, like, clean-cut by 1970 standards. He does have, like, shoulder-length yes. hair and a, and a you know, denim jacket. He just bathed uh, more recently. He did, basically. <laughs> now, a woman in the background walks by smiling, which uh, has no bearing on the story. We just thought we'd mention it. It, really, it looks like it, it's going to lead to something, but it does nothing. Yep. It's just a woman there. Uh, Slater says... You gotta help me, Brockman. Once the Macaroni brothers find out I can't pay their 500 nicker, they'll have my guts. It's your own fault, Slater. Fancy buying a van load of prison suits? Then Slater grabs Dave's lapels and gets more threatening. Watch yourself, Brockman. Lest you let me lie low at your house, I'll start singing about you to the wrong people. Dave thinks to himself, he's right. One word to the law and I'll end up in Borstal. Then my old lady will be stuck away in some home. Known as Borstal School, this is a type of re rehabilitation for youth offenders in the United Kingdom. Uh, in America, we call this juvenile hall, juvie hall. Yeah. So Dave and his Slater crash at his mom's house, and he sneaks him in through a second-story window. Slater has to climb a rope of knotted sheets like a reverse prison break to get inside. <laughs> uh, Dave goes downstairs, where his mom reminds him to see his probation officer, the old nag. Mm -hmm. Caption reads, Dave had to report his, to his probation officer twice weekly. Mrs. White says, uh, his probation officer, Mrs. White says, Well, I've managed to get you in at the local church youth club. It's a really nice place. A place where young people can enjoy themselves. Thank you, Mrs. White. 
and he thinks to himself, at least it'll keep me away from Slater. Then Mrs. White's face hardens and she says, It's been brought to my attention that you've been spending some time with a certain Clem Slater. You can certainly do without his sort, David. Yes, I've arranged for you to hang out with a new friend. Timmy McSnitches. Oh, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. He's a, a guy you can trust. He loves talking. Uh, now, <laughs> later that evening, Dave is at the church club, and a youth pastor introduces him to a girl named Debbie. She says, Hi, you're new here, aren't you? How'd you hear about us? Uh, through a friend. He, he said it was a good place. Dave and Debbie cut loose on the dance floor and are having a grand time, but Dave's fun is ruined by a familiar voice from the pinball machines. Pinball machines, huh? It's one heck of a youth club. Yeah, really. I mean, you look like you get an air hockey in most of these yeah. places. Slater said, Look, Al Brocky's got himself a bed. Eh? Clem, what you want here? This ain't your kind of place. Now Slater stands cockily at a game, cigarette dangling from his mouth, and says, I know, but I'm supposed to be lying low, ain't I? No one would think of me looking, no one would think of looking for me in a flea pit like this. Yeah, he's usually found it far worse places than a flea pit, <laughs> Seems right? like it, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, someone advises Slater that there's no smoking around in the club, and so Slater extinguishes a cigarette into the guy's palm. Wow. Mm, that's hardcore. The uh, youth pastor looks on disapprovingly, as you might imagine. Slater moves over to the billiards table, and the pastor confronts him. Actually, you know what? It might be a snooker table. I don't really know the difference. <laughs> it might be. The pastor goes, Are uh, you? That was a silly thing to do. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Slater grabs a pool cue and points it at the pastor's chest. Oh, yeah? You and him's army. No one tells Glenn Slater what to do, especially spotty-faced youth leaders. Got it? Then Slater steals Debbie from Dave and leads her to the dance floor. Wanting to avoid more violence, Dave doesn't do anything about it. <laughs> uh, Slater, worth saying here, seems to be a really poor dancer. He's just like whooping it up and stomping. <laughs> he even says, Stomping Clem Slater, they used to call me. I can really turn it on when I'm in the mood. Debbie thinks to herself, You'll get your just desserts one day. Just wait and see. I, I want to be stomping Christian. I'm about to <laughs> well, get into the, into get the to dance. Get you know, <laughs> Then two mafioso stereotypes burst into the joint and start looking for Clem Slater. Word must be getting around about those uh, pinball machines, huh? I tell you, people don't want to go for miles around. Far and wide. Uh, upon seeing them, Slater takes off running, running, but one of the thugs throws a billiards ball at Slater and knocks him to the ground. Yeah, so a fellow named Carlo goes, Well, Mr. Slater, where is our cash? Okay, okay, I lied to you. I didn't want the money to buy stolen gear. What did you want it for? Slater points at Dave and sells him right out. I borrowed it for that guy. He told me his old lady needs special treatment to help her walk again. The hoods order Dave and Slater outside. There, Carlo pulls a switchblade and explains how things are going to go. Look, Sonny, you've got 24 hours to come up with the 500 quid, plus another 100 for interest. Any funny business and you'll be joining your old lady in a wheelchair, okay? Is he, uh... Allowed to say no to this uh, thing? <laughs> I mean, he, he did ask him very politely. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> As for you, Slater, if he fails, then you get the job too. Uh, sure, uh, we'll get the money. Dave thinks to himself, Hell, they'll do us proper. But where am I going to get that sort of money? The closing line at the bottom of the page reads, How can Dave keep out of the nick? More next week. 
I can't wait to tell the to tell the folks how this all ended up. It's really, gonna be great. It's gonna love, be great. Yeah. <laughs> now our next story is Hell's Highway. Uh, the top line reads: A snake in the grass saves the truckers. The opening panel depicts two men standing in a swampy land held at gunpoint by two other guys in suits. Behind them is a freight truck with Acme Transcontinental written on its side. A man stands outside the cab of the truck and appears to be stretching. Caption reads, Framed by a secret U.S. government agency, truck drivers Steve Manning and Danny Kusiak were being forced to do special jobs for the agency under two officials named Hartwell and Mayer. Their latest assignment was to ferry a bunch of Cuban refugees down to the tip of Florida, but they discovered that the refugees were to be murdered by Cuban hitmen on the orders of Hartwell, now in the swamplands of the Everglades. Now, if you think that cross-country trucking is a weird subject for a comic book story... Well, you're right, it It is. is. Um, (laughs) But remember that the U.S. and part of the world was going through a big trucker CB radio fad, uh, ushered by movies like Smokey and the Bandit from 1977, uh, Break a Breaker 1977 as well, and uh, Convoy from 1978. And don't forget about that great song, Truckin' Convoy, that came out, I think, Mm -hmm. in the same year. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the agents says, We've been telling you two pugs ever since you left Washington. Hartwell figured you'd go soft, and he was damn right. But you ain't gonna screw up this assignment. Then refugees have gotta die, whether at our hands or the Cubans. The government agents push Steve and Danny further into the swamp to do their killing. Yeah, Steve thinks to himself, Hell, Godmouth Muck's in line on that tuft. Deadliest swamp snake there is. If I can grab its tail... Steve grabs the snake and flings it right at one of the gunmen, who says, Cottonmouth, ugh. Grab the other guy, Danny. Danny grabs the other guy by his ankle and pulls him down into the swamp and says, Come on, into the drink, pal. Ugh, blast you. Danny picks up the machine gun and shoots the government agent's face off and says, (laughs) No, blast you. Hitmen deserve all they get, pal. Steve and Danny push the government agent's car into the swamp, where it disappears. You know something, Steve? We've left the trail of stiffs across Florida, but there ain't no evidence pointing directly to us. If we can still rescue those refugees, maybe we can fix it so no one ever be the wiser. Yeah, go chasing after some political refugees. That that shouldn't draw too much attention, right? No, no, no one will notice that. No, no, no. Steve goes... Yeah, the chase's still on, and my guess is that Hartwell's bunch will head for the keys, as in the original plan. Caption now reads, Driving through the night, they bypassed Miami on the Hialeah Turnpike and headed through Florida City on Highway 1. Early dawn found them off mainland America on Key Largo. Steve and Danny find the road blocked ahead. It's all due to a hurricane warning. Uh, since that didn't seem to deter the dead, the bad guys, uh, they press on anyway. The Keys are hundreds of tiny islands dotting the ocean off the Florida coast, many joined by the famous overseas highway that reaches out to Key West, over 100 miles across the sea. Finally, Danny and Steve catch up to the guys that took the refugees. The bad guys are stunned to see them pulling up in the rearview mirror. When Steve and Danny pull up alongside the Acme truck, the guy in the passenger seat pulls out a machine gun and just (laughs) riddles them with bullets. Ain't glad you interfered, punks. Pull over, Steve. I'm gonna blast that rat. But... 
Hey, you're pulling over too far, you lunatic. Can't help it, man. The wind blowing us all over the shop. Ah, see, you almost passed for an American, but then you <laughs> had to say all over the shop. You killed it. Yep, very close, pal. Oh, I almost, I almost believed it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Steve says they, they'll have to let the guys go. It's too windy to pursue. But Danny pulls out a grappling hook and has a better idea. Board the truck. Danny throws his hook at the top of the truck. It catches on a safety ladder, and he's whisked out of Steve's pickup and kind of clambers aboard. One of the thugs appears behind the truck's cab with his gun trained on Danny. He goes, Gotcha, Kuziak. This is where it all ends for you. I wouldn't be too sure about that, baby. <laughs> Danny tosses the grappling hook at the gunman and catches him in the back of the head. Then he yanks him right off the truck and into the water below. Wow. Happy landings, Birdman, but somehow I don't think we'll ever see you again. Danny crawls down into the cab and absolutely fills the driver with bullets, uh, which is a smart thing to do. Uh, the truck almost careens right into the water. Uh, instead, they take the refugees back to Florida City and somehow circumvent the Cuban Revolution. Uh, we're really not clear on what's happening. Yeah, I kind of lost track. Something about honest. why they wanted. Why do they want them to be killed? We don't even. We're not even understanding. We don't know. Yeah, we hop back to Fort Myers, where Steve and Danny are pretending to have been. Where they've been. T- uh, where they're pretending that they've been all along. Their boss, Mr. Hartwell, shows up. Hartwell goes, "Where the hell have you two been?" Steve says. Here, waiting for you to turn up to do something about our hijack rig. What's wrong? Didn't the job go as you wanted it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Your rig's been found on the overseas highway. Looks like the damn refugees are out of the way, but I seem to have, uh, lost some agents. And then Danny thinks to himself, Yeah, and you won't see any of them again, pal. Ever. (laughs) <laughs> this seems to be good enough for Hartwell, who walks away. Walks away uh, <laughs> but Steve points out that their days are numbered. They got to get out of this game and fast. Our closing line reads: Will Steve and Danny ever get out of trouble? We'll find really out can't, next I week. Can't wait! Right? I can't wait! I can't wait! <laughs> <laughs> uh, next one's called "Look Out for Lefty." This story is about football or soccer in the American parlance. Mm-hmm. Uh, the line at the top of the story is. Lapted the Bionic Bombardier. Yes, we have a caption that reads, In his first senior game for the third division Wigford Rovers against Rotherfield, 16-year-old apprentice Kenny Lefty Lampton used his deadly left foot to lure a gang of Rotherfield soccer thugs to the arms of police. And now Lefty is making their team pay dearly for the hammering he has taken. The opening panel shows Lefty kicking a soccer ball against a goalie's head. Uh, Then it goes wide and misses the net. Yeah, Fen goes, oh, that was almost number three. Lampton's bombarding that goal like 16-inch gun. Another fan says, without their thugs to howl them on, Rutherfield have gone to pieces. Rutherfield doesn't take kindly to this treatment. Uh, one of them kicks the ball hard into Lefty's stomach, even. Uh, now the team owner, Jim, says, Mark, I don't like it. They're ganging up on him. Maybe we'd better pull the kid off. It's his first senior game, remember? Aye, but I think you'll find he can take care of himself, boss. Lefty gets control of the ball, starts kicking it down the field. Three from Rutherfield's team converge on Lefty. Yeah, he thinks to himself, Here they come. You're about to receive your baptism of fire, Lefty. Fan goes, Lampton's outnumbered three to one. They can set him back a whole season if they give him a good duffing up. <laughs> but Lefty's fancy footwork proves to be too much for the Rutherfield boys. 
Yes, they all collapse as he darts on past them. You don't even touch them. They just all fall down. They just fall, yeah. He thinks to himself, basic gank. That tackles are so wild. Ada Sharples could dock him. Don't no, you? Ina, Sh- Ina Sharples is a fictional character from the British soap opera Coronation Street. She was uh, played by Violet Carson from 1960 to 1980. And uh, she's a prudish moralizer on the show. And uh, Lefty's comment must be referring to the fact that she was also rather heavy. Probably would be not good at dodging in soccer. Probably not. Then one of the soccer thugs from the previous issue looms before Lefty. It was, Ugh, w- want another dose, kid? Well, if it ain't the nasty gentleman who almost conducted me guts with me backbone. Now see how you like it. Lefty appears to wind up for a really hard kick to the ball, and the thug thinks to himself, He's going to hit him with that left of his rotten to make kisser. The lefty kicks the ball, but much softer than expected. The soccer thug flinches anyway and catches the ball with his hand. And in case you don't know the rules to soccer, that's a no-no. No no, no catching with your hand. Is that a a yellow card or a red card? That I can't tell you, but it's (laughs) it's one of the basic things. Don't do it. Uh, Lefty's team, the Wigford Rovers, are cracking up at the stunt Lefty pulled. In fact, they tell him to take the penalty shot since they can't stop laughing. Lefty hits the net so hard with the ball, he rips through the back of it. So they win the game, we think. I, I am really, I, I'm not positive that they win the game. I don't know. <laughs> Someone says that those two points should put them to the to, into the top three. So uh, I guess we can assume they won so, some sort of a playoff match here. I or guess. Something? Is it by points, though? I don't, I don't really get it. I don't know. Maybe they're all wearing pedometers and you count how many steps That's they took. That's what it is. Yeah. Whoever, whoever ran the best. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, everyone is cheering for Lefty. Yes, Coach Mike goes, looks like we found a new star, Jim. That lad could give us the motivation that Wigford has been looking for. And Jim says, yeah, if his head doesn't start swelling, look at him soaking up the limelight, just like a typical starstruck teenager. Well, come on, he is 15 years old after all. Uh, he is actually a teenager. I mean, give he is a break. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, Lefty runs over to Mike and Jim excitedly. Hey, Mr. Roberts, what a game. I really sorted them out, eh? And Jim thinks to himself, I thought so. Here it comes. A big-headed blow-by-blow account of how he scored his three goals. And caption reads, But the Wigford boss, Jim Bowker, wasn't the first person of misjudged Lefty. Let's help the magistrates throw the book at those Rutherford yobs. And Jim thinks to himself, Well, I'm not aware about the game. The lad seems to have got a bigger kick out of helping to round up those hooligans. One of Lefty's fans shows up to tell him that two of the Rutherford thugs slipped away from the police and then stole two motorcycles and announced that they were going to Lefty's granddad's place. Wow, all right. (laughs) You know, it it seems like a rough thing to do, but it is pretty nice of them to let everyone know their intentions, right? It's true. They know where to find them, you know what I mean? They're not hiding. Uh, So Lefty immediately takes off for his grandfather's shop uh, since he's all alone down there. Jim offers to drive him, but Lefty is downstairs and on his bike before he can even answer. In fact, we find out it's his granddad's rickety old bike, according to a caption. Lefty arrives just in time to see the Rutherfield hoodlums speeding away. Yeah, one of the thugs goes, Yeah, let's go, Nick. When Lampton sees that little lot, he'll wish he never heard of the Rutherfield Rippers. My cripes, I'm too late. Lefty enters the shop, which is completely trashed. Yeah, he hears some moaning from beneath a pile of rubble, and uh, it's Grandpa. Can't breathe. I'm I'm dying. Grumps, is that you? Hang on, old mate. I'm coming. You'll be okay now. 
But when Lefty pulls some furniture away from his granddad, he sees that the poor guy has been tawed and feathered. It's, kind of, it's like a pretty striking, gross scene, you know? It's kind of, it is. It was a little bit difficult to, to figure it out at first, and I was like, oh, yeah. man, it's sort of messed up. <laughs> granddad goes, Oh, my sainted it. What in hell's name have they have two screwballs done to you? The ending copy reads, Lefty sets out for revenge next week. Right. Mm-hmm. Next story is Hookjaw. Now, while many of the stories in action were what Pat Mills called dead cribs, these were essentially rip-offs of popular films, books, and comic heroes. Hookjaw is one such obvious example, which is a crib... It, this is a crib of uh, Steven Spielberg's blockbuster movie Jaws from 1975. Except here, Hookjaw is uh, the hero. Well, sort of. Sort of. Uh, no. <laughs> the opening line is, The scavenger of the seas strikes again. Uh, the opening panel shows a deep-sea diver being rolled, lowered into the sea by a helicopter that belongs to the Royal Navy, and uh, the incredibly gigantic white shark Hookjaw is leaping out of the water <laughs> to meet him. I mean, gigantic, like, it makes Jaws look like a guppy. This thing is yeah. ridiculous. Uh, Hookjaw sinks his teeth into the diver and pulls his body uh, into the water. It's also gushing blood everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While the diver screams in agony for help, Hookjaw drags the helicopter down and into the ocean by the diver's rope that he descended on. The pilot and co-pilot of the helicopter jump out of it before it hits the water, but now they're just easy pickets for Hookjaw. Uh, I'm sure glad this story is in the color section, aren't you, Chris? I think this is good. We would never know otherwise. Right? <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> now, the pilot reaches the surface of the water and screams for help. So the Royal Navy sprays the water with bullets. This does uh, nothing to stop Hookjaw from eating the pilot in front of everybody. Uh, Some treasure hunters taken prisoner by the Royal Navy sense their chance to escape. That's the story behind this whole thing. The Navy has arrested some scuba diving thieves and plan to investigate the treasure themselves. We didn't think the plot was too important considering the uh, story's protagonist. Yeah, is, basically, uh, you know. uh, shark food appears for Hookjaw is really the other <laughs> plot for this. About the size of it. Uh, so somehow these thieves overpower the Royal Navy and shoot all of them on the spot. A bloody body trailing from his mouth, Hookjaw swims down to a sunken ship that is currently his pad. And in that ship, of course, is the treasure. Overhearing that another Royal Navy ship is coming to pick up the soldiers they just killed, the thieves put on some of their uniforms, and when the ship arrives, it's a minesweeper, and uh, the crew notices nothing amiss here. They take on the thieves with no problem. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to recover the treasure, too, uh, but sonar sweeps reveal that Hookjaw is lurking below. The crooks tell the Admiral about Hookjaw as well. Uh, the Admiral the admiral sends some depth charges down there, saying they'll sort out any sharks that might be down there. Uh, Hookjaw has to swim deftly to the side to avoid being blown to pieces. But he survives, and uh, boy, I bet these jerks would have gotten it if, uh, if there was a, you know, an next issue coming. We'll talk about that later. Now, the closing line is terror at an English resort. Next week, and I, I really can't wait to find out what happens to that <laughs> resort. I gotta say, I'm with Evelyn from the beginning. I think Hookjaw is one of my favorite comics, too. <laughs> he about, needs a comeback. Talk yeah. about it, right to the point. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> let's not let's not fabber, fast around with this. Uh, the next comic this is also I, I love this one too called Kids Rule Okay. 
Now, Pat Mills believes that this is the story that got the issue banned because it depicts children mocking authority. Uh, we think it also might have something to do with it, but maybe the giant shark biting people in half and the trucker that shot a guy in the face with a machine gun contributed to the feeling as well. You didn't uh, do any favors, right? I think, I think it probably all came together to create <laughs> a certain situation. Uh, the line at the top of this page reads, Law and order is just more aggro and kids rule okay. Caption reads, in 1986, freak climactic conditions combined with massive worldwide pollution have sparked off a killer disease, which has wiped out most of the adult population of the world. Only kids were left to form themselves into gangs and do what they liked. London, the Malvern Road, the Malvern Road bunch, led by Ray Spencer, were heading down to Bakerloo tube line toward Baker Street Station, when suddenly they were attacked by a group of uniformed police cadets. The opening panel does, in fact, depict a big dust-up between some dirty-looking kids and some others in police uniforms. Eventually, the police o police cadets overpower the Malvern Road Bunch, and one of them finds himself coming to with a whopping headache. The lad goes, oh, my, my head, where, where the hell am I? And the guy says, in Uro Police Station, lad, and you're in real trouble. A wider shot shows us a uniformed adult, a sort of sniveling-looking guy with a buzz cut and an overly trimmed mustache. Disturbing the pace, promoting lawless behavior, causing grievous bodily harm, assaulting a police officer in pursuance of his duty. Oh, I'm going to throw the book at you, lad. What, what do you mean, promoting lawless behavior? They know law, and who the hell are you anyway? The man stands up from his desk and grabs a yardstick and says... Chief Inspector Ronald Stride, for your information, lad. I'm the law, judge, jury, and punishment enforcer. All rolled into one, lad. And the way I work, we'll soon have the little tykes like you brought to heel. Stride uh, brings the yardstick down on the kid's knuckles on the straight edge of it, so wow. the worst part to be hit by, uh, by a yardstick. <laughs> the young lad goes, Oh, how, how, come you, how come you didn't snuff with the rest, mate? Not every adult died in that unfortunate business a year ago, you stupid little burk. There's still a few of us left, luckily for the world, because we're going to bring a little Lord Order back into. And the kid starts smiling knowingly. Oh yeah? I've got your number, Stride. The boy stands up and pushes the large desk onto Chief Inspector Stride. <laughs> You're a raven nut. Red dead! Red dead! Ugh! The door bursts open and a bunch of uniformed police rush in. They overpower the kid with billy clubs pretty quickly. Uh, one of these guys is the aforementioned Ridgden. Yeah, just so you're not wondering why he was yelling that. <laughs> uh, Stride directs Ridgden to throw the boy into one of the punishment cells, and he is bodily thrown into a stark room with a wooden cot, then left alone. Blimey, what a mess. That bloke strides a person, psychopath, and the sooner I get my mob out of here, the better. But first, I've got to get myself out. Let's see. I reckon I could get up to that shelf above the door. But instead, he hops on top of a wooden cut. <laughs> and, these, and these bedboards ain't too strong. Cracking them should have, shouldn't attract the fuzz. The lad kicks at the bedboard, snapping a couple of them, and that does indeed bring the fuzz to check on him. Yes, when the when the, they open the cell door, though, the prisoner is nowhere to be seen. And one of them says, Can't see him anyway, but he can't have gotten out through the window. Come on, let's go in. There's two of us. When the officer enters, the imprisoned boy leaps down from above the door and onto his back. And this might be the worst prison cell in the world. Like, why would you put a shelf above the door? 
Sprite? They're literally Maybe. giving them a, a, a means to do what this kid just did. But anyway. Maybe they're they're big fans of that bucket full of confetti. That's the, it was it was gotta the be from a prank, probably. Yeah. <laughs> now the kid whirls around and grabs the other officer by his face. Pushing the officer up against the wall, the kid demands to know where the rest of his gang is. A reverse angle shows another officer creeping up behind the kid, and he's got his billy club at the ready. Now, this one doesn't get a closing tagline. Uh, there is a half-page ad for a sports magazine called Tyga instead. Yeah, and the tagline for that one is, For everyone who likes sport. I love sport. <laughs> I just, it's not, not how we would say it in America, that's all. No. Uh, the next story is Death Game, 1999. This is where the image on the front cover comes from, by the way. Uh, the top line reads, Kruger has a nasty surprise. A gory surprise. And uh, the opening panel shows the beginning of Death Game, which is apparently played by people on motorcycles wearing football helmets. Uh, They move a metal ball around an icy surface with hockey sticks and also gouge and gore each other mercilessly. So it's basically hockey. Pretty much, yeah. That's Okay. Yeah. Uh, caption reads, Joe Taggett, leader of the Carson City Prison Spinball Squad, needs only one more victory to earn a full pardon for himself and his team. But the authorities fear Joe's popularity with the spinball fans, and Kruger, the chief prison guard, has been drafted into the squad with orders to plant a bomb in Joe's bike. Now in the Alcatraz death house, as the game explodes into life... An announcer says... And there she goes, fans, the first faded. If Joe Taggart can turn on another deadly performance, the Carson City Killers are heading for Freezeville. The leader of the Alcatraz Assassins, Abe Creel, shouts in protest that it will happen only over his dead body. Maybe we can arrange that, Abe. I hear you've got a date with the electric chair if the Assassins go spinning to defeat. Shut up, you mouthy punk. What you trying to do, pull me off my game? And at the direction of Joe, the Carson City Killers are biding their time until the ball's in position. Then, the time is right. Joe says, now let's go, you killers. Hit him with a dummy scissors. But Abe Creel is also scrambling for the ball. It looks like his team doesn't have motorcycles. Like, what? why? What's going on? <laughs> Seems like a handicap. Right? I would think that would be a handicap. Yeah. <laughs> Hold in, Alcatraz. Get that ball. Then the killer zigzag on the ice, mauling assassins as they go. Caption reads, inspired by Joe's training, the killer's spike bikes crisscrossed at bewildering speed. In the chaos, the assassins lose track of the ball, but cutting back, Joe Taggart's able to scoop it up on a special spout in front of his bike. Hmm. Joe rides fast between some giant bumpers, preparing to shoot the ball. Oh, yeah, there are gigantic bumpers on the ice, too. That's right, forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> Just to add a little more depth to it, yeah. Announcer says, Target's clear. This looks like an early score, folks, because old Joe's heading for that black pin. And Chief Prison Guard Kruger watches on, smiling. I said, Wonder Boy, think that firing piston. The impact will detonate the bomb I planted on your scoop gun and blow you to kingdom come. But when Joe kicks down on the... Uh... Scoop gun, the ball fires and hits its target without further incident. Zowie, right on the nail. Taggart's opened his account with 15,000 fantastic points. Uh, the bomb didn't blow. He couldn't have hit the piston hard enough. I gotta get the ball, feed it back to Taggart. But Alcatraz assassins aren't aware of what Kruger has planned here. No, caption reads, an Alcatraz defender has scooped up the rebounding ball, but Kruger roared in fanatically... Kruger comes zooming in on his bike and kicks this poor assassin to kingdom come. 
<laughs> it's yours, Joe. Yours. Hey, this Kruger's a real live wire. He's spiked the defender and even given Joey Boy possession. In the stands, a sweaty-faced man watches intently. The caption tells us that he is Harry Smales, uh, the Carson City prison governor. Yeah, he says, now, the time is, it's got to be, blow yourself to hell, Taggart. But Taggart hits one of the bumpers, or deflectors as they call it, and uh, it starts to ricochet between several of them, which makes it gain velocity and racks up mad points as it bounces. Eventually, it whaps an Alcatraz assassin right in the chest. I never did trust that number six, but you should be able to see through him now, folks. <laughs> there's, that's that's a good one. Uh, now there's a timeout while they swap out, you know, the uh, the dead teammate for one that isn't. Yeah, there's a little a little commercial break yeah. there. The killer's score stands at thirty five thousand points as Alcatraz give themselves a breather so they can bring on a substitute. Joe tells Kruger that he's that he's working well on the team since uh, that deflection really helped them out. But Kruger is not so enthusiastic about it for obvious reasons. He thinks, I was hoping it'd kill you, Taggart. Hell, there must be something wrong with that bomb, so I'll have to waste it myself. Then the bomb, the ball is fired again, and Kruger is after it like a shot. Some assassins try to converge on Kruger and keep him from shooting, but he punches and kicks them away pretty easily. He thinks, to blazes with the pins. The spin ball is reserved for Joe Taggart. Everyone will think it was a stray shot. So die, you punk. Die. Kruger shoots the ball at Joe, but then his bike explodes into smithereens with a baroom. Well, how do you like that? Must be the tension of the game, folks. One of the killers just plain went to pieces. But the Carson City killers aren't so sure. A fellow named Yo-Yo goes, Joe, what happened? What the hell made that bike explode? Joe says, I'll tell you later, Yo-Yo, assuming we get out of this alive, because there's just six of us now against the whole Alcatraz squad, and they'll be fighting like wolves to save themselves from the electric chair. Well, wouldn't you? I mean, if you had this opportunity, you'd pretty much give you'd it You'd probably own. try to take it. I right? would think yeah. so, yeah. Uh, the closing line is, how can Carson City win? With guts, that's how. That sounds good to me. You got my vote. <laughs> we got uh, our next story is Hellman, Hellman on the Russian front. Uh, the opening tagline for this is, Don't lose your head, Hellman. Try and save your men. The caption reads, Winter 1943. After bitter fighting, the city of Ozell has finally fallen to the Russians, and only three prisoners out of the German garrison have been taken alive thanks to the treachery of one of their own men. But a fourth man also lives and watches in hiding. The garrison commander, Panzer Major Kurt Hellman. In a town square, a bunch of Russian soldiers are drinking and celebrating their fortune. Uh, we're going to say these depictions are a uh, little less than flattering. Yeah, they look a little messed up in here, I will. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, the German hostages are being held there in the square, bound and on their knees. But one Russian soldier is not in a party mood. He says, Commissar, these three are just gutter scum. Hellman is the dangerous one. He must be somewhere in the city. You must find him. One of the hostages spits spitefully. You won't find the Major. He's too smart for trash like you. 
The Russian commander instructs everyone to check every house for Hellman. The rooftops, every room, everywhere. And in the process of searching, the Russians loot and destroy the entire town. I mean, they really, they're just opening doors and firing machine guns at whatever's behind them. They're not looking at anything. <laughs> not really. <laughs> just setting the place on fire. Uh, still, the Russian soldiers turn up nothing. That's because Hellman is cleverly hidden inside a snowman. Wow, he thinks to himself. Yeah. For once, the snow is on my side. I must seek. I must seek out my next move carefully if I am to rescue my men and escape with my life. Then the Russians are driving a tank down a snowy street, and Hellman recognizes it as one of his. Yeah, one of the Russians says, "Driver, flatten those snowmen to slush." And the driver goes, "Duh." As he thinks to himself, "So I must show my end now." Hellman bursts out of the snow with his rifle drawn. After calling the Russian Russian soldiers' names, Hellman guns down all three aboard his tank. Then Hellman jumps onto the tank himself. He tears off the Russian flag affixed to the side, and he hops on in. I must get aboard before anyone suspects anything. So then why remove the Russian flag? Yeah. I mean, that they gave you your best cover. It, look, it, it, it looked like you were part of their army. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the square, the Russian commander watches a procession of tanks roll by, the last one being that, germ, that stolen German one, and he rubs it in with the hostages. Ah, now, the last tank is passing. Look, German pigs, it is your own tank. Take one last look and then you die. Brenner goes, burn in hell, Russian swine. But then the tank turns from the parade and starts to roll right for the center of the square. We know where there are all those Russian soldiers plus those German hostages. The mm-hmm. tank rolls right up the steps of the square and the Russians all flee. <laughs> Hellman pops his head up after they've gone. Hurry, Max Brenner. Hurry. As <laughs> Hellman says, Hurry, Max Brenner Decker, on your feet, men. Brenner goes, Wunderbar. It's the Major. What kept you so long? Suddenly, a large man with a hood over his head chucks an axe at Hellman. There goes, look out, Major, the axe man. Axe man says, Stava, I'll have your head. Hellman flips up the tank hatch, deflecting the axe, and somehow sending it ricocheting back so the edge hits the axe man in the face. Nice to meet you. Sorry to see you go. There you go. (laughs) A great throw. And now Hellman uh, unties his men and tells them to climb aboard the tank. Somehow, in all this confusion, they've taken the Russian commissar hostage. (laughs) I don't know how that even happened. I don't know if we saw that. I I couldn't even. It was such a crazy scene. The suddenly he's just. So the commissar is held at gunpoint at the front of the tank. Hellman driving the thing right right through the center of town. Dozens of Russian soldiers line the path, guns drawn and aimed, but they hold their fire. Yeah, Brandon goes, whoever kills the commissar will face a Russian firing squad. And uh, one of them says, what? The Russian heroes are bound? A man holding a bomb over his head runs headlong at the tank. The Schwartz goes, you schwein, Hellman. You won't get past me. I blow you to hell. And Hellman says, Schwartz, that traitorous scum with a Stalin mine, he'll kill us all. One of Hellman's men throw the commissar right at the guy <laughs> with the bomb. No, he'll just kill himself and the commissar. And the Russian hits the German. They go boom. Boom. (laughs) Hellman drives the tank and his men right out of the city and into the punishing snow. We have escaped this time. This snowstorm will cover our tracks. But we must find the rest of the German army. Wunderbar. I'd love to see the faces in the Kremlin tonight. And And then we cut over to the Kremlin. (laughs) 
where, uh, where we don't see all that many happy faces. But we do see some familiar faces, uh, including Joseph Stalin, Vladimir Lenin, Leo Tolstoy. You know, all the greats of the uh, Russian Communist Revolution. They're all just hanging out together. All the hits are all there. It's yeah. nice. It's like, it's like, it's like the, the cover of the first Beatles album. Uh, <laughs> Stalin says, One German tank commander outfits a whole Russian regiment. He must be made an example of. I will offer a personal incentive to my men. A million rubles for this man, Hellman. Dead or alive. The closing line reads, The Russians want blood, and Hellman has to fight. Uh, Chris, did we just read a story set in World War II where the Germans were the good guys? And and it was made by British creators, so, uh... I, 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 I don't know if we're allowed to talk about this. I think it's yeah, best we just, uh, we don't talk about this one too long. Move past that. That was a little <laughs> weird. And finally, we have the inside back cover, and uh, this is kind of a continuation of the collage of reader mail and other stuff seen on the inside cover and front page. There's a send-up of, send of a sports announcer named Eddie Waring as Twit of the Week, and even a snippet of a letter requesting that he be so named. There's a uh, fan-submitted cartoon called Action Mouse. In it, a mouse commits a uh, strenuous workout before uh, suiting up in a World War One-style military outfit complete with a rifle. Uh, he needs to do this to prepare to uh, enter the editor's office of Action because he wants to ask for a pay raise. Bah, bah, bah. Mm-hmm. Plus, there's an advertisement for next week's issue of Action. Can't which, wait. Which we will be happy to tell you all about just as soon as we come back from a little break. our societies, we don't believe in constraining the media, still less in censorship. Well, Maggie, that wasn't exactly true, was it? When Mrs. T was elected in 1979, the country was transformed. She kissed goodbye to the permissive 60s and 70s. Her big thought was privatisation. But ironically, what we did in private came under increased moral scrutiny. In the most private space of all, the family home, a sinister and threatening new device lurked like a toxic monster in the corner. The video cassette recorder. All right, and uh, here we are, um, after having read that wonderful issue number 37. Mm, 30, we, yeah, 37, yeah. We are prepared to talk about number 38, except it didn't come out for a little while. Remember, this one was banned and pulped. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is said that 30 copies of Action Number 37 were saved and still exist in the world, though uh, uh, we haven't found any pics of it online, and there seems to never have they have never shown up at an online auction, which doesn't mean they don't exist, but that would be the only ways we could really find out. Uh, the scanned version that we read uh, to do the show appears to be cobbled together. I'm not positive, but some of it even looks like original drawing boards, possibly. Yeah. Or, uh, mm-hmm. it, it looks real rough. Uh, real raw. Some yeah. of them are, you know, there's a couple of color pages. Uh, the cover looks like unfinished, but uh, it's hard to tell, you know, exactly what the deal is. Absolutely. Now, uh, after a little bit of retooling, action would return with a cover date of December 4th, but the violence was way turned down, and the previous sense of anarchism was replaced by a safer, blander feel. Uh, you know, stories like Hookjaw were no longer drenched in blood and gore, but instead were full of safer and more reliable heroes and also traditional villains as well. Sales, as you might imagine, dropped drastically. <laughs> and uh, the last issue before merging with Battle Picture Weekly was cover dated November 11th, 1977. 
Now, Battle Picture Weekly would become Battle Action until 1982, at which point the action name was dropped entirely. Uh, Though action annuals continued to be published separately from battle annuals yearly up until 1985. (laughs) Uh, I guess uh, it all comes down to uh, British comics being British comics. uh, British comics are weird. They are weird. I never never understood. Uh, anyway, the, the resulting from this, though, was that in 1976, Mills brought Wagner as a script advisor for a new science fiction comic he was developing, 2000 AD. You might have heard of that one. Maybe. Wagner suggested that the new title needed a cop story, and his proposal, Judge Dredd, took the Dirty Harry archetype further, imagining a violent lawman empowered, empowered to dispense justice on the spot in a future New York. Artos Carlos Esquera was asked to visualize the character, but Wagner initially hated the elaborate look Esquera came up with, thinking it way over the top. When a proposed buyout of 2080 that would have improved creators' terms and conditions fell through, Wagner walked away from the comic before the first issue was published. Pat Mills took over the, de- the development of Judge Dredd and wrote many of the early stories with the help of freelancers, establishing the character and his world before Wagner returned at issue number nine, which was an April 1977 cover date. In 1978, IPC launched Star-Lord, a short-lived companion piece for 2000 AD. Probably not that Star-Lord. No. Uh, now, Mills contributed Robusters, a uh, series about robot, a robot disaster squad which moved to 2000 AD when Star-Lord was canceled. Robusters was the beginning of a mini-universe of interrelated stories Mills was to create for 2000 AD, which included ABC Warriors and Nemesis the Warlock. Artist Kevin O'Neill was involved in the creation of all three. Uh, Nemesis in particular, featuring a morally ambiguous alien hero fighting a despotic human empire, allowed Mills to work out his feelings towards religion and imperialism. Another strand of his 2000 AD work was Slain, a barbarian fantasy based in Celtic mythology and neo-paganism, which he would co-create with his then-wife, Angela Kincaid. And we do have plans to cover 2000 AD in a forthcoming episode of Cosmic Treadmill, probably even not a, not a dark one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll just put a cap on these achievements right now, but that is sure. the direct line between action and Battle Picture Weekly right into uh, 2000 AD. So there's there's your hook. But we also want to talk about video nasties. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a term, I think we both probably first heard this in The Young Ones, right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, kind of like, was like, what's that about? Well... We're going to tell us and you guys all about it right now. (laughs) Uh, A term coined in the early 1980s by the media in the United Kingdom in reference to primarily imported horror video cassette releases. These were films considered to be nastier than other releases, with heavier emphasis on gore and violence. Generally speaking, a video nasty is a VHS tape released prior to 1984, which has been deemed obscene by the British government and is confiscatable by authorities. Yeah, so uh, how do you determine whether something's obscene? Mm, Uh, I don't know. Well, uh, in the UK, film ratings are overseen and certified by the British Board of Film Classification, or the BBFC. The BBFC, they were known by something different with the same initials. They were known as the British Board of Film Censors before, uh, and that was established in 1912 and would begin operations on January 1, 1913. It isn't a governmental organization and, in fact, was founded by the film industry, but uh, well, let's be real. I mean, I'm sure there was a little bit of back and forth. And well, you know, they have, a, they have a, different, a different thing because they do subsidize their arts and enter- entertainment in d- totally different ways than America does, so they have hmm. a different stake. It's, it's interesting to see how censorship 
how you know anyway how these mm-hmm. entities end up uh, censoring themselves. Sure. Uh, anyway, it is responsible for na- uh, the BBFC is responsible for national classification and censorship of films and in theaters and after 1984 home release. That after 1984 bit is going to become important, but first a little more of the BBFC story to set the stage. The quick and dirty, or the quick and nasty, as we suppose it is, they are required to classify releases on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, basically any physical media that you can view. Yeah, even like some video games fall under their purview. It's an uh, it's interesting topic. Um, now, the BBFC would form in response to the, November, to the October 1912 release of the film From the Manger to the Cross, which, if that isn't obvious enough, it's about the life of Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, the Daily Mail criticized the filmmakers, claiming the film to be sacrilegious, like they were profiting off of uh, Jesus' story. Right. Though, when the film was viewed by members of the clergy, they, uh, they saw absolutely nothing wrong with it. Hmm. So, what do you end up? Luckily, they never did another movie like that about Jesus. Never, ever. Additionally, (laughs) excuse me, uh, the BBFC had only two rating certifications. Uh, Rating of U was a film especially suitable for children, and then rated A was a film generally suitable for public exhibition. Then there would be several prohibited images and themes listed by the BBFC, including abdominal, abdominal contortions in dancing. I love that. Yeah, I can't have that. Uh, <laughs> in nineteen in January nineteen, that's like the same thing where they wouldn't film Elvis's hip. Elvis right? from uh, yeah from, from below uh, the hip, below yeah. the waist. Yeah. In January nineteen thirty three, a third rating was added. It was rating of H, films which are likely to frighten or horrify children under the age of sixteen years. The H stood for horrific and was in response to the emerging horror movie industry. Fifty-five films would be rated H, the film, the first of which was Vampire, The Dream of Alan Gray from 1932. Now, the H rating would remain until 1951 when it was subsumed into the X rating certificate, uh, indicating that the film was suitable for those aged 16 and over. Then, in 1970, it was amended so it would be suitable to those aged 18 and older. In 1982, the X certificate was done away with and replaced with the 18 certificate, which uh, is a little easier to understand, actually. Yeah, especially when we break, when we go into all the uh, classifications. <laughs> Indeed, because today the BBFC uses seven certifications. You have UC, which is universal, but especially suitable for very young children. There's U, universal, and the film may be enjoyed by the whole family. As PG, parental guidance, parents may consider certain scenes unsuitable for their children. Then the rating of 12 is for persons age 12 and over, 15 is for persons age 15 and over, and 18 is for persons age 18 and over. Then there's R18 for sex videos that are available only in licensed sex shops and to persons aged 18 and over. Then there's an also an eighth rating. It's an unofficial one, but it's a rated E for educational, uh, such as sports and wildlife sort of stuff. So what happened after 1984, that watershed year? Mm. Well, videotapes became a thing, and uh, movies that could never be shown in British theaters were now being shown in people's homes. Video stores began to open and flourish, and suddenly uh, all of these films could be viewed by just about anybody. It wouldn't take long before lobbyists, the press, and most importantly, Parliament started to show some concern. Yes, let's jump back to May of 1982, where Mary Whitehouse, we mentioned her earlier, Mm -hmm. she's of the Sunday Times, and the Sunday Times is British's largest selling national newspaper, was established on February 18th, 1821, and she would coin the term nasty in a series of sensationalized articles that she'd written. Uh, She'd portray the the video folks as uh, morally corrupting the youth. 
Gee, where have we heard that before? I have no idea. No, no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, around the same time, the public consciousness was somewhat raised over these nasty films due to advertisements being run in some video magazines. Hmm, these ads were from two different film distributors. There was Vipco, a video instant picture company, who were distributors for the 1979 U.S. horror film Driller Killer, and Go Video, distributors of the 1980 Italian film Cannibal Holocaust in 1976's SS Experiment Camp. In an attempt to play the old Controversy Creates Cash card, Go Video would send an anonymous letter to the aforementioned White House, complaining about the content of their own films. And this backfired. Yes, it did. Uh, White House would pen an article titled, How High Street Horror is Infading the Home. Other media outlets, including the Daily Mail, would join in, and before you know it, video nasties were being scapegoated for any violent crimes conducted by youths. Really? Where, where have we heard this? It really sounds oh, familiar. Jeez. little familiar. Try to ring in a few bells here. Yeah. Now, uh, of course, the furor of this only made the kids want to see these movies even more than before. Um, season 2, Episode 3 aired May 29th, 1984. One of our favorites, The Young Ones, that we mentioned earlier, was actually called Nasty. Oh, yeah. And it featured the lads getting a hold of one of these video nasties. The one they got was called Sex with the Headless Corpse of the Virgin Astronaut. Uh, it's worth noting that there was actually a scene in that episode deemed too nasty to broadcast, and it had to be deleted. I think you see the scene deleted card too in that one. Is that, is that right? I think or so, no? yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. And they, I think they might have brought it back with the DVD release. Maybe. It's it's two bears, two teddy bears fornicating. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And I can't remember if I've seen that, but I can picture myself seeing that. I can that. picture I it. Uh, I probably yeah. did it myself in my own bedroom as a kid. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway, police would begin ceasing copies of obscene films from distributors, including the aforementioned SS Experiment Camp and Driller Killer, which I think was Abel Ferrara's first film, actually. Yes. Uh, also, mm-hmm. I Spit on Your Grave, 1978, and Death Trap from 1977. As obscenity is considered illegal in the UK under the Obscene Publications Act from 1959, authorities were legally able to seize these films and prosecute. The Obscene Publications Act of 1959 was introduced to Parliament by British politician Roy Jenkins and was approved via Royal Assent on July 29, 1959. Among other things, it allows for justices of the peace to issue warrants, which gives authority to the police for seizing these materials. Section 3 of the Act covers authorities' powers of search and seizure. In August 1982, the first video nasties to be deemed as unseen under the OPA would be The Driller Killer and Death Trap. The seized videos were destroyed. Now, this opened the door for more police raids and seizures uh, seeking out potentially obscene materials videos. Uh, In July of 1983, the first official list of titles suitable for prosecution was introduced by the Director of Public Prosecutions, the DPP. They were established in 1879. Now, this list initially included 17 films. After some additions and removals, they settled at 39 films. These films were, generally speaking, banned in the U.K. If you were caught distributing any of these films, you could be persecuted under the Obscene Publications Act, Section 2. Ultimately, there were 82 titles which were seized under the OPA, 33 of which were considered civic forfeitures, wherein no criminal charges were levied. You just lose your tapes and know they'd be eventually be destroyed. Or so they said. Anyway, <laughs> the DPP list is broken into sections. There's Section 1, Prosecuted Films, Section 2, Non-Prosecuted Films, and Section 3, Video Nasties. 
Yeah, so what's on these lists? We're going to we're gonna cover the first one here because it's pretty long, and uh, we've been going on long as it is. Uh, yeah. We're open to discuss the others eventually. Uh, this is Section 2, the prosecuted, prosecuted films, and we're going to list them to you or discuss them briefly in alphabetical order. The first one is Absurd. It's uh, from 1981. It's a Panamanian-Italian film distributed by Medusa Home Video. It's also known as Red Blood, Anthropophagus 2, Zombie 6, Monster Hunter, Horrible, and The Grim Reaper 2. Now, this was released in cut and uncut versions, but they both use the same sleeve design. I hate that. Come on. (laughs) So, uncut versions of this was added to the DPP list in 1983. Now, a version with 2 minutes and 23 seconds worth of cuts was deemed okay to release in theaters the very same year. So, as we get through this year, just keep in mind that a lot of these films are like seconds away from being perfectly legal, perfectly fine. Uh, It's just they need these little bits snipped out. Now, uh, for Absurd here, this film features some very gory and graphic acts of murder and is uh, considered a spiritual sequel to the next movie we're going to look at right now. Which is Anthropophagus, The Beast, from 1980, an Italian production distributed by Cinedaf. Uh, also known as Anthropophagus, Anthropophago, The Grim Reaper, Man-Beast, Man-Eater, and The Savage Island. This movie features cannibalism added to the nasties list for a scene in which the man-eater tears a fetus out of a pregnant woman's belly and bites into it, which... That's pretty messed up. Yeah, it is pretty messed up. And we're going to be saying cannibalism a lot. <laughs> there is a lot in here, yeah. I mean, we, we were hinting at it earlier, like how there are similarities between this and a certain other uh, <laughs> regulatory group. Yeah, oh, um, for sure. And, it's, and, you know, it's a very interesting subject, but when you start digging, it gets very repetitive. It's like, okay, no vampires, no no cannibals. Yeah, no well, they, they have a checklist, you know what I mean? It's like it. Things yep. that they just go down, and if you hit those, you, do, you get the rating, and if you don't, you, <laughs> you don't. You get it. Now, uh, the next one we're going to discuss is Axe. This is an American film from 1974. It was distributed by Box Office International Productions, BIP. It's also known as Lisa Lisa. And the Cult Cult Jam. Jam and Full Force. (laughs) Uh, Now, this is a film featuring rape and rape revenge, which was uh, one of those exploitation tropes of uh, the mid-70s. I mean, the thing is, this whole list is like a bunch of drive-in theater movies from America. It's all grindhouse. It's all grindhouse stuff, yeah. Uh, A Bay of Blood, uh, 1971, from Italy, distributed by Nuova Linea Cinematografica. Cinematographica, that'll be good enough. Sure. A.K.A. Ecology of Crime, Chain Reaction, Carnage, Twitch of the Death Nerve, and Bloodbath. This one has graphic scenes of murder and the most controversial film director, Mario Bava. Yes. Next one is The Beast in Hell. This is an Italian film from 1977, distributed by Independenti Reginali. It's also known as SS Hell Camp. This is a Nazi ploitation film, which we're going to be saying a few times, uh, featuring a beast that's on a diet of, quote, mega aphrodisiacs who would torture, molest, and rape prisoners at a Nazi camp while the Nazis gleefully watch. Wow. Uh, Blood Feast, this is a classic in the horror gore world 1963, an American film Distributed by Box Office Spectaculars This one has explicit gore Often erroneously cited as the first film To uh, feature people dying with their eyes open Which is an odd thing to hang your hat on Don't you think? <laughs> okay. I guess you didn't make that one But you still grossed no. everyone out enough uh, Theater goers were given vomit bags to drum up interest 
Mm-hmm. We got Blood Rights, another American film from 1968, uh, distributed by J.E.R. Pictures. The original title for this was The Ghastly Ones, and in it, a trio of sisters are murdered in a house on an island, carrying out their dead father's final wishes. Also, a live rabbit might have been eaten on film. E, that could be a problem, yeah. Mm. Bloody Moon was from 1981, uh, comes out of West Germany and Spain co-production. In, in this movie, a disfigured rapist and murderer is institutionalized. Added to the list, likely for a scene featuring a beheading via a circular saw. We got The Burning from 1981, USA, so, uh, distributed by Filmways Pictures. This one was actually added to the list by mistake uh, due to a scene featuring the murder of a prostitute with a pair of scissors. Uh, the tape would accidentally be released uncut. It was meant to be cut, and it wasn't. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, and uh, this was uh, done by the distributor, uh, the UK distributor, Thorn EMI. So since a copy, since copies existed in the world, it made the list. They were able to prosecute. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Cannibal Apocalypse from 1980, a joint production between Italy and Spain, um, released by New Fita, also known as uh, Invasion of the Flesh Hunters, and it's got on the list because it's a cannibal flick. Mm-hmm. Now we got Cannibal Ferox, 1981, Italy, uh, distributed by Medusa, uh, also known as Make Them Die Slowly. And Woman from the Deep River. That's uh, more cannibals. And uh, also, this one act- this one f- features scenes of actual animal torture. That's right. And, uh, mm-hmm. that, that This one, Cannibal Ferox, and then the next one, Cannibal Holocaust, those are considered the two biggest cannibal movies of the era. But uh, yeah. uh, 1980, an Italian production, but distributed by United Artists United Artist Europa. This has several scenes of gore, including an especially unpleasant impalement scene. Also more scenes of actual animal torture and abuse. The director, Ruggiero Diodato, would be arrested and charged with obscenity upon release. Many felt Cannibal Holocaust was actually a snuff film. The actors had actually had to testify and prove they weren't dead to clear him of murder charges. <laughs> About that. Uh, keeping with the cannibals, we got The Cannibal Man. This is 1972 from Spain. It's also known as Week of the Killer and The Apartment on the 13th Floor. This fella is both a butcher... And a murderer, hey. which is uh, pretty convenient. Yeah, one-stop shopping. You got all the tools, yeah. That's right. <laughs> and you uh, could sell, you could get profit, too. <laughs> Devil Hunter is a West German film from 1980, a.k.a. The Manhunter, Mandingo Manhunter, Cannibalin, and Sexo Cannibal. More cannibalism. Hey! We got uh, Don't Go Into the Woods, a 1981 film from the United States. Uh, this is distributed by Seymour Borden Associates. It's also known as Don't Go Into the Woods, dot, 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 alone. Okay, uh, in this one, a group of hitchhikers are brutally murdered. Um, and this is supposedly based on some rumors of the day around the Rocky Ra- the Rocky Mountain region. Oh, really? Hitchhikers yeah. were getting deaded? Getting, getting deaded. The Driller Killer, which we mentioned, one of the first to be uh, on the list from 1979, an American film distributed in the UK, I assume, by Vipco. Attempted to. (laughs) Uh, They attempted to, right. Uh, This is pretty self-explanatory. A man kills people with a drill. That's all there is to it. It's true. Uh, we got Evil Speak, uh, 1981, USA, uh, distributed by Video Space. Now, this was added to the list due to violence and themes of Satanism. It's worth noting that Anton LaVey, the founder and former high priest of the Church of Satan, thought this was a pretty good movie. Well, that's enough for me to ban it. That's it. <laughs> uh, Expose is a UK film from 1976, distributed by Target-UK. 
uh, also known as House on Straw Hill. And this was added to the list due to graphic violence and sex. We got Faces of Death from the United States, 1978, uh, distributed by Aquarius Releasing, also known as the original Faces of Death. All right. And, and this was one of those, like, schoolyard playground oh, yeah. legendary films, you Absolutely, know, where, yeah. you know, everybody had that uncle who had the tape, uh, but it wasn't the same uncle that worked for Nintendo. It yeah. was a different one. It was a different guy. Uh, <laughs> Different uncle, yeah, my dad's side. Um, and this one features graphic scenes of death and animal cruelty, uh, some of which is real. Uh, yeah, my brother rented this from the from the mm-hmm. video store, so it oh, yeah. it, it, it was pretty disturbing to watch. It think. was pretty gross, yeah. Because <laughs> they they made like a whole series of them into the nineties. There was a bunch of them, uh, as yeah. I recall. I think I don't think I ever I kept up with all of them, but the first one was always the worst one. Like I can still remember a couple of scenes from there, the brain yeah. surgery and stuff. Yep. Yeah, because they got faker and faker. As I think went. that's I, what it was. Yeah. And, and you know, you get more a nerd to it over time. You're like, throw another puppy on the fire. You know. Come on. <laughs> anyway, uh, fight for your life from 1977. That's an American film distributed by Michigan Motion Pictures. This is a grindhouse film cited as being amazingly racist. Uh, Flat Out was denied British theatrical release, and when the video cassette was released, it found its way onto the nasties list. We got Flesh for Frankenstein, 1973, an Italian-French film uh, distributed by Gold Film. It's also known as Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. Now, this one features a scene wherein Dr. Frankenstein uses the uh, surgical wounds of his female creation in order to... um, well, you know. Right, you we, know. we can put it together, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Andy Warhol's contribution, contributions to this film, as far as we can tell, is uh, he uh, he visited the set this one time. Well, that's all you need. His, about ge- it. his genius yeah. came in and the place was... Uh, Osmosis, yes. Yeah. Uh, Forest of Fear, <laughs> that's 1980 from the USA, distributed by Parker National Distribution, a.k.a. Blood Eaters and Toxic Zombies. In this, hippies are sprayed with a chemical that turns them into flesh-eating zombies. Yep. Uh, we got uh, Gestapo's Last Orgy, uh, 1977, from Italy. This is Independenti Regionale again, also known as Last Orgy of the Third Reich. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, more, as you might imagine, more Nazi politation and uh, some hardcore porn to uh, to even it all out. But I bet it was the Nazi stuff that really, really burned the butt. I'm guessing, yeah. Uh, the House by the Cemetery from Italy, 1981, distributed by Medusa. This is a Lucio Fulce film and features graphic seeds of murder and mutilated bodies and also a zombie. Can't have that zombie. Nope. Sorry, <laughs> you're on the nasties list. Now we have The House on the Edge of the Park, an Italian film from 1980 from Adage Film 76 distribution. Uh, this is a loose remake of Last House on the Left, which we'll get to in a moment. Yeah. But first, I Spit on Your Grave from 1978. That's a USA film distributed by Jerry Gross Organization, a.k.a. Day of the Woman. This is a rape and revenge exploitation film with some genital mutilation to boot. Banned in many nations with the claim that it glorified violence against women, which... I thought it was the exact opposite. It could be argued the exact opposite, quite frankly, yeah. (laughs) I thought it was a vindication sort of thing. It's a pretty messed up movie, that's for sure. It's one of the very few on here I've actually seen. Um, We have Island of Death from Greece, 1976, uh, distributed by Vipco. A man and a woman posing as newlyweds, they visit the island of Mykonos, and they go on a murderous spree. Oh, it's of the Bauki Bartakamos, no? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry yourself, though. Uh, They're only killing the people that are sinful and perverted So uh-huh. it all works out in the end uh, The scene, the film features scenes of rape Lesbianism and uh, 
This man and a woman who are posing as newlyweds, they're really brother and sister. So you have some incest in there as well. Don't be ridiculous. I only kill the <laughs> sinful people, Larry Appleton. Now we are so happy. <laughs> we do the dance of death. <laughs> uh, and now, finally, well, not the final on the list, but we get to the but, last the big, house on the yes. left, the big boy. 1972 USA. This was Wes Craven's directorial debut. Well, uh, non-adult film directorial debut. <laughs> Uh, a pair of teenagers are kidnapped by a quartet of creeps, two named Fred and Krug. Hmm. Fred Krug. Hmm. Okay. Mm, interesting. They are forced into sex acts and ultimately killed. The creeps unwittingly find their way into the home of one of the girls, and the parents discover that they most likely killed their daughter and decided two wrongs make a right. There's a chainsaw involved and a scene that is certain to make every fella watching it squirm more than a little bit. They had a more mm. of that old mm. genital mutilation we love here. But <laughs> last sauce on the left was refuse a cinema certificate due to scenes of sadism and goofy depiction of police. It's it's one of the weirdest things that yep. it's like comedy and like a rollicking uh, barrel house piano whenever they show up. Yeah, because it's the guy from uh, Cobra Kai in The Karate Kid. It's uh, Billy the, uh, the curly hair dude. Oh, the curly hair guy. Yeah, it is. Him. Yeah. yeah, much younger. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's such a this uh, this uh, this would have to wait for home video release. This movie, uh, which boy, I saw at age nine, and probably was one of the worst things that ever happened to me. Let me tell you. But uh, it's wild, isn't it? It really is quite a movie. Although I could, I could even go on talking just about this movie, but we won't. But uh, I was gonna say because this one, I, I was actually just going to put this one on the list because I thought that we could get quite a bit out of this one. This is based one of the few I've seen. an earlier Swedish movie, actually, which is it's a whole long yes, uh, where the where like a spring, like the the, mm-hmm. the 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 woman, the girl is killed, and then like a spring springs up out of the ground or something. I think and, that's how, it's because I think that movie is based off of some old folktale, but also. I'm like, Sure, yeah. This movie was also based on an incident that sort of happened. Not <laughs> really this way, though, but, you know, it was very loosely based. But uh, anyway, suffice to say, the video release was not in the cards in the UK for this movie. No, sir. Uh, we, <laughs> we go to the next one is Love Camp 7, the United States film from 1969. It's from Olympic International Films. More Nazi exploitation, hey. featuring a sadistic commandant of a woman's prison camp. And uh, almost the entire film features full frontal nudity. So, uh, just like uh, Wallywood's gangbang. So, yeah, but I mean, you call you call the place you go, Love Camp. What do you expect? What do you expect? You're gonna see what you. It's right. Uh, <laughs> the dress code is very loose. Madhouse is an Italy-USA co-production from 1981, distributed by Medusa, also known as There Was a Little Girl and When and End When She Was Bad. Uh, this is an exploitation film featuring one twin sister stalking and attempting to kill the other twin sister leading up to their birthday. And this was added to the list for graphic content. It almost seems interesting enough to watch. It does, Just yeah. by that little so A bit lot of there. these actually I'm kind of interested yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. We're going to get to one that really piqued my interest in a little bit. But uh, first, we got Mardi Gras Massacre. This is a United States film from 1978. This is a semi-remake of 1963's Blood Feast, which we already mentioned. In it, a serial killer stalks the streets of New Orleans, sacrificing women, mostly evil prostitutes, to a Peruvian god. Uh, this one uh, would be banned in the UK, of course, but it would even get an X rating here in the United States. I mean, you think that the, uh, if it got an X rating here, it would be banned in the UK automatically, but probably, <laughs> banned almost everywhere. Probably yeah. not, yeah, because we <laughs> tend to have the gross stuff. 
Uh, Nightmares and a Damaged Brain is a USA production from 1981, also known as Nightmare. This has sadomasochistic sex acts and gore. The distributor would be sentenced to 18 months in prison for refusing to edit even one second of the violent footage. This would be the only nasty to have its distributor actually spend time incarcerated. Pretty interesting. Mm. Um, we got Night of the Bloody Apes uh, from Mexico, 1972, uh, distributed by Azteca Films Incorporated. It's also known as The Horrible Man Beast, Horror and Sex, and Gomar, the Human Gorilla. In it, a mad scientist conducts a heart transplant to save the life of his dying son. But the only heart donor he can find is a, a gorilla. A gorilla. Yeah. It's going to be a gorilla. So it's going to be a gorilla. Now, be. the gorilla boy goes on a spree of murder and rape before a luchadora, a female wrestler, masked female wrestler, That's stops right. him. Well, the, you know, this is this is uh, tied into the uh, Aztec women. And the, uh, you ever hear of those movies? Those little short no. series of Mexican movies, Aztec women and the... And the uh, the, the wrestling women in the Aztec mummy That's what it is There's a series of movies where there's luchadoras wow. Like as heroes And this is tied into it I think I think the t- producer was the same And just used them It's nope, definitely okay. a grosser movie But frankly It's not on the level of Blood Feast Or any of these other ones uh, Sure, sure This one, another great one Night of the Demon, 1980 Produced in uh, USA Distributed by Vipco This is a graphically violent film featuring a group of scientists looking to prove the existence of Bigfoot, and this has scenes of castration and disembowelment. Mm, Very pleasant. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got Snuff, 1976, Argentina-USA co-production here, uh, released by Monarch Releasing. The original title of this was Slaughter. Now, this is a grindhouse splatter film featuring a female biker cult, uh, and it's believed to have included a real-life murder. This was not helped by the tagline, which said, Snuff, (laughs) the film that could only be made in South America, where life is cheap. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) <laughs> and also the fact that the film didn't have any credits uh, that, really didn't help either. Too, yeah. <laughs> uh, this one actually still has not been released officially in the United Kingdom. Oh, so I bet they can get their hands on it now. I'm sure. Uh, SS Experiment Camp, an Italian film from 1976, released, uh, distributed by Go Video. This is also known as SS Experiment Love Camp. Uh, <laughs> guess what? More Nazi exploitation and sex, and also castration. Sure. Yeah. Now we have Tenebrae. This is 1982 from Italy, aka Tenebrae, with uh, a little different spelling. <laughs> yeah. Now this one's added to the list due to its highly sexualized presentation of its violent content, and uh, we really can't tell you much about it. I, I read like the first two lines of the synopsis and thought this is a fun. This might be one to watch. Wow. No, I I, this one I've never it. heard of. Uh, it's it's uh, like a guy. He's a. It's one of those. I mean, there's those tropes in these films where like a writer goes somewhere so he can write, and then sure, all this yeah, stuff happens. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like that, and then people turn up dead. It's. It seems like it could be a very interesting, uh, mm. interesting thing, and I didn't want to ruin it for myself. So. Yeah, you don't want to ruin that highly sexualized presentation of violent content. Never, so, never. That's for later. Uh, next is the Werewolf and the Yeti that came from Spain in 1975, also known as the Curse of the Beast, Night of the Howling Beast, and Hall of the Mountain King. <laughs> a man is turned into a werewolf by a pair of vampire women. What? Is that how it works? I don't know. I guess if it's if you get bitten by two vampires, that's a werewolf. I don't know. Uh, he fights a Yeti, and uh, there's a bunch of nudity. Yeah, I don't know if it's Yeti or werewolf nudity. I'm guessing it might be the vampire women. I don't know. Probably. Now, our final film is Zombie Flesh Eaters, an 
Italian film from 1979. It's also known as Zombie, spelled right, and Zombie with just an I, or I guess the Italian version of Zombie, mm. uh, 2, Zombie number 2. Yep. And in this, we have zombies and cannibalism, and you know by now, we cannot have that. Can't have either, folks. Sorry. <laughs> Now, as we mentioned before, I mean, many of these films would only require the slightest of tweaks to be bumped down to, like, X rating or 18 rating, whatever right. it was at the minute. But, uh, you know, it's just so crazy to consider how, uh, like we were saying, like, it's a list of things that you cannot have, and there's no gray area, and it's like, is there a zombie? Okay, you're done. You know, when you it's like, tur- it's only you, there for five seconds. When nope, you turn done. this kind of thing into a... Uh, bureaucratic, you know, uh, you sure. know, checks and balances. You, you remove all common sense. It just becomes how many. And you know, it's it's the same way in America, where a difference between uh, two ratings might be a curse word. You know, where it might it, it yeah. might be ten seconds or less of footage. It's it's. Uh, and in America, they don't tell you. The MPAA just gives you a rating, and you have to figure it out. Although I think a lot yeah. of times they have an idea of what it is. But it's uh, it's it's interesting the way. Just censorship itself is a very interesting subject, you know, as as sure uh, guys that do, you know, talk about comics and we talk about, you know, that long arm of censorship, it touches on so many other things. And to, and to look at it in this country and around the world, it's just different ways, diff- different ways to go about it. It's really fascinating. Sure is. And uh, now this was just a list of prosecuted films. Uh, there are 33 non-prosecuted films. There's another list entirely just called Video Nasties. Yeah, I know. I mean, there are there are so many lists here that are that are like the slightest deviations and, and like just what you could be charged with or not charged, if it's civil, if it's criminal. Mm. It's very, very interesting. It's very confusing, <laughs> but I think it's meant to be that way. Like most UK publication stuff, we're always like, what happened? You know, like, been... I got to buy a digest. I just bought a treasure. I just bought it's like why does Spider-Man finish in the Incredible Hulk? I don't really understand. Uh, but you know, I'll tell you what, we might we might stumble on some other banned UK materials in the future. Yes. We can go back to the subject and uh Absolutely. talk about the rest of these. And also worth noting, probably not even worth saying though, uh <laughs> many of these films really played up their banned in the UK status when marketing in America. I'll tell Absolutely. you what. That was Absolutely. a huge thing, you know. Banned cannot be seen. And if you have any thoughts on uh, action, number 37, or the series, or the United Kingdom, or our wonderful, terrible uh, British accents, or if you've seen any of the video nasties that we mentioned Mm -hmm. on the segment, please write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t-mail history. You can find us on Instagram at cosmic t-mail. And we're on Twitter at the same thing, at Cosmic T-Mill. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Uh, you can check out our weekly writings and talkings about uh, new DC Comics over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com every week. And you can see Chris's daily writings on currently Action Comics Weekly at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarth.com. He's been following the series Action Comics Weekly, doing an issue a week. Mm-hmm. And I throw in a poll up on Thursdays to see what people think is the best story of that anthology. If you don't know what I'm talking about, when I say Action Comics Weekly, then a great place to go find out is at <laughs> ChrisOnInfiniteEarth.com, where I'm, he's looking at all of them. So uh, yes. this, this is your chance to become a certified expert. Just head over there. 
It's a master's class, or at least a, uh, a one-on-one class. Something like that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can also check out our site over at chrisandreggie.com, where you'll be able to find all of our show notes, archives, images, and episodes. So you'll be able to listen to the episodes in the order they were intended to, and uh, you won't miss anything. Yeah, definitely go check that out. But I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? That'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill. And face forward, you burk. Don't know what that means. Save the queen.